it took several months for a uh, hundred thousand cases to be recorded here, and then it took less than a month for the second hundred thousand cases uh, to be recorded here. And a lot of it, Armada, is because people just don't have any faith or any trust in this government. For example, we see that orders that have been put into place are often being amended based on political considerations. Welcome to This is Palestine. I'm your host, Omar Badar. Israel now has one of the highest coronavirus infection cases in the world, and of course, many of those impacted are Palestinians. On Wednesday of last week, Israel recorded the single-day highest number of cases of nearly 7,000 infections. To compare it to the U.S. on a per capita basis, that's like having more than a quarter million cases in the U.S. in a single day. Now, to help us understand what's going on there, we're joined by a voice you should know well by now, our own Diana Butu, who is based in Haifa. And we're also joined by Amanda Arraf Saade, based in Ramallah. Diana and Amanda, thank you both for making time to do this. Thanks, Armand. Thanks for having us. Um, yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start with Diana. You're under a second lockdown right now. Can you describe what the situation is like there? Yes, so uh, this is now the second lockdown, which which makes Israel the first country um, to actually undergo a second lockdown. And what that means is that people are unable to leave their homes beyond a certain um, number of meters, except to go to uh, go to essential things um, such as to go to the doctor to pick up medication from the pharmacy and to do some basic grocery shopping. Apart from that, everything else is, is closed. And the Israelis are um, giving out, the Israeli police are giving out very heavy fines if they see people beyond uh, the 250 meter mark, or if they see people walking without any masks. And so what this has meant is that we are effectively, once again, confined uh, to our homes, confined to these very small spaces. And do you have a sense of why this is happening there? I mean, it's, it's remarkable, you know, to, to have cases that are rising that fast. What's, what's actually happening? Yes, you know, it took several months for, for uh, 100,000 cases to be recorded here. And then it took less than a month for the second 100,000 cases uh, to be recorded here. And a lot of it, Armand, is because people just don't have any faith or any trust in, in this government. For example, we see that, um, that the orders that have been placed, that have been put into place, are often being amended based on political considerations. For example, at one point, uh, there was a widespread shutdown ordered of all restaurants and all bars. And then that was turned over within 24 hours after there was a lot of pressure that was brought to bear on the government by restaurant owners. Um, similarly, one thing that we've seen throughout is that we've seen that uh, when it comes to Jewish religious services, that those seem to always be exempt from, from these orders. And so you see things like uh, the, the ritual baths that are even open even now under the strict quarantine regulations. We see that gatherings at synagogues are still allowed. Um, we see that 
it's it's you can even get a permit to be able to be considered an essential worker if um, or an essential service if you are uh, if you are attached to a synagogue and so we've seen that over time that people are have no faith in this government that everything has been administered in such a political way without really any um, rational basis that is that is that is dictated by health guidelines. Instead, the health guidelines are thrown away or throw, thrown out the window. If we see, for example, that um, fitness fitness centers and gyms are putting pressure on the government and so on, and so it's a government that's been responsive to political lobbying and political pressure and religious pressure and isn't responsive to um, to people. And so what we see is that people are. Uh, as they say, voting with their feet and completely ignoring many of the orders that are coming forth. Mm -hmm. And I imagine, you know, once people see that there are exemptions to dif for different gatherings, they think, well, why not me? And then just nobody wants to take it seriously at that point. Yes, and this is why we've seen now that um, that the cases are are very much on the rise, and uh, and that as you mentioned, that in one day we were more than seven thousand um, new infections, and I can tell you, Omar, that the circle for many of us is is tightening and getting and getting uh, closer and closer and closer, as we see and know more people who are actually being infected. Um, just this, just today alone, there are 1,500 new uh, cases of people going into hospital. This isn't mm -hmm. just infections, but people who are being admitted into hospital because of uh, the, the impact of the coronavirus. Yeah, and Diana, you mentioned that the circles are getting smaller and smaller. Does that mean that you know a lot of people who've been affected as well? Oh, definitely. I have uh, eight cousins, eight first cousins, who have been mm. affected by it. Um, uh, only one so far has uh, recovered, and the rest of them are are still in the process of uh, of recovering. And describe it as as some of the um, some of them have described it as perhaps the worst days of their lives, with mm. uh, with everything from um, ongoing headaches to Dry coughing to um, uh, to weakness to um, inability to to even you know to to inability to breathe properly and so on and so so yes definitely just within my own um, within my own family uh, we've seen I've seen this number of cases so far. No, it certainly sounds awful, and and certainly we wish them a speedy recovery. Um, Although obviously it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult time with something that the medical industry is still trying to grapple with and figure out how they can mitigate. Um, Amanda, you are in the West Bank. You are in Ramallah right now. Um, the situation is similar in some ways and very different in others. Can you tell us what's going on there? Yeah, so it's, it is very similar in that there are cases, hundreds and thousands, of, or not thousands, but hundreds of cases being recorded every day. Um, today alone, there was 43 in Ramallah, which is where I'm based. And the only big difference is that there's no lockdown here. I don't know if it's for the better or for the worse, but uh, that's the situation we have here right now. Yeah, what's, um, what's your sense? Why no lockdown? I mean, if the numbers are rising so fast, what's, what's going on there? We actually experienced our second lockdown at the end of June, beginning 
uh, July. And it was for about a month, but maybe two weeks were full lockdown. And then the last two weeks were a partial lockdown. And I think even with that, um, the first two weeks, people we could already see were, were over it. They didn't want a second lockdown. The economy alone was just, people were struggling, people were losing their jobs. I have several friends that lost their jobs. And I think having to go through a second lockdown um, really hurt people even more. And so towards this, the end of the second lockdown, things started opening up slowly and there were more restrictions. And out of nowhere, one day there was an announcement that it ended. So the, even the restrictions were kind of um, were lifted, except mm -hmm. for um, uh, wearing a mask. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that's also being adhered to fully. By everybody. Yeah. So it's it's technically a rule, but not one that is super that is enforced very strongly. It sounds. I feel like it's almost become a suggestion, and yeah. um, and <laughs> but but nothing like I you I would probably see if there's maybe you know from the grocery store maybe less than half of the people there are wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. So I know that there aren't lockdowns at this point in the West Bank, in part because of the economic impact and everything else. But would you say that life has completely gone back to normal or how would you describe it right now? I would say that people would like to think that life is back to normal. Um, restaurants are opened, cafes are open, people are going out, you know, there, you do see masks, but not everyone is wearing a mask. Um, there was a requirement that you do wear masks. And even when you see police patrolling the streets, they don't stop anyone that's not wearing a mask. But I, I would say that it is still a very real threat, the coronavirus. And, you know, like Deanna was saying, the circles are, are getting smaller and smaller for people that you, we know that have the coronavirus. And so you mentioned that there was already a second lockdown earlier in the summer. It seems like things are happening at an accelerated rate under the Palestinian Authority, where there is an opening up that happens maybe perhaps prematurely, a shutting down again and then a reopening up. Is, um, is that your sense as well? Yeah, yeah, completely. I think, um, so we shut down March before there was even one recorded case, which I think a lot of people commended that enforcement of it and mm -hmm. were kind of happy, like, yes, let's take care of this now so we don't have any cases. And slowly, you know, you would hear about like five or six cases and it was shocking just to hear like five, you know, or, and then when we decided to, to open up again after two months of full lockdown, I think everyone thought, oh, the government um, handled it very well. We didn't have any cases. And then, of course, right away, there was a spike. And it's summer, so there's a lot of weddings, a lot of gatherings, a lot of people visiting each other and not thinking that there really was a reason to quarantine because there had been no cases during the quarantine before. Yeah, that's the catch-22. Under quarantine, because the quarantine is working, people think there is no threat, and then it becomes a reason to to just try to return back to normal. And that ends up being the reason why there's another spike. It's, uh, it can be cyclical in that way. But I know that I'm sure that part of the reason has to be the economic discrepancy. The fact that there is a pretty significant lockdown in areas that are under the control of the Israeli government versus the small areas that are under the control of the Palestinian Authority. Diana, could you talk a little bit about sort of that discrepancy and what hardships people are facing and how those can vary in, in different areas? Yes, definitely. You know, one thing that I think uh, people should be well aware of is that um, since the start of the Oslo process in 1993, 
the Palestinian economy has actually gone backwards. It hasn't gone forwards. Uh, people are worse off today than they were back in 1993. And the reason that this is the case is because Israel controls so much of Palestinian natural resources. It's embarked on a process of de-development, uh, both in, in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. And because um, there are so many checkpoints in place and so many uh, building restrictions in place that the Palestinians can't actually be able to, to import, export, and have a viable economy in the way that that uh, other countries and other places around the world uh, do too as well. Now, when the, the add to this, the fact that um, the Israeli government has been putting a lot of pressure on, um, on the Palestinian Authority, both by withholding the tax revenues that it collects on behalf of the Palestinian Authority, and by the way, that's 60% of the money that um, is the, that goes to the Palestinian Authority, plus then putting pressure on the donors to also cut back on the amount of money that goes directly to the Palestinian Authority. And so you can see that this is even before the pandemic began, that, that they were already under tight circumstances. Add to that now all of these pressures that are being brought to bear as a result of the pandemic, and you see that there is no system that's in place to be able to provide any assistance or any compensation, particularly for the 300,000 Palestinians who are living in Area C, which is the largest portion of the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And so for many, uh, many Palestinians, they have continued to go to work because they don't really have any other option. It's not as though they're going to be able to get any um, any any money coming in in any other way. So there hasn't been a compensation scheme. There hasn't been an assistance scheme. It's just been a question of people continuing to go off um, to work if they can. And and as a result, we've also seen that um, that a lot of Israeli employers, be it in inside 48 or inside uh, the settlements, have exploited Palestinians and especially Palestinian labor to the point where many of them are living under such horrendous conditions that um, they have instead been forced to return back to their small area, their small uh, towns um, in area C, rather than continue to live under these very harsh uh, conditions but that are being, that are being uh, laid out by their Israeli employers. Yep. And this exploitation, as you mentioned, is partly driven by the fact that people have no other options there that, you know, they can't collect unemployment or it's just basically the, the, the options are limited for them. You know, it's, it's important also to keep in mind that Netanyahu is using this opportunity to try to crush and quash the, um, or at least stop, let's say, the anti-Netanyahu protests that are, that are, that have been forming and have been continuing against him now for, for quite a number of months. Um, he's been mm -hmm. using these health regulations to try to stop protests, and yet he doesn't use the health regulations to actually um, make sure that establishments are closed or to make sure that people are um, are listening to to health guidelines instead mm -hmm. it's been as it normally is with him a question about him and his survival rather than um, rather than the survival of all of the people who yeah. over whom he rules their lives it's it's really remarkable the parallels with the u.s where 
the mishandling of the Trump administration that has been completely disastrous, total incoherence and denial and contradictions. And it led to this massive spread of the virus in the US. But now there's also an attempt to try to blame the protests that have, you know, uh, have taken off after the police killings of, of black people in different states. Um, it's it, it really just between Trump and Netanyahu. There's it seems like there's constantly a track that is that is happening unfolding on on both sides at the same time. Um, Diana, on we certainly should not neglect the situation in Gaza, which is obviously under an extreme strain because of Israel's siege and blockade that has been going on for many many years now. Um, they are under lockdown as well. Can can you describe a little bit about what the situation in Gaza is like? Yes, the situation in Gaza is is even more dire than it is in in the West Bank, and the reason is is that we the the, the health system has been um, the target of many Israeli assaults for quite a number of years. Whether it's direct assault, as we saw in uh, in the various uh, attacks on Gaza in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand fourteen, etc or the indirect assault uh, because of the cutting off of electricity, the, the poor uh, water supply that is in place there, and the refusal by Israeli authorities to allow uh, much needed supplies to enter into the Gaza Strip. And so the authorities in the Gaza Strip um, have now recorded that there, there were a total of 2,800 um, cases in the Gaza Strip, current cases that we uh, that we have right now are about 1,400 cases with roughly 21 um, deaths. I think the number has gone up uh, since the last statistics were, were shown. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, uh, there, was, there, there was at first this myth uh, surrounding the idea of, uh, of Gaza being immune because of, of Israel's blockade and siege. But we see that the blockade and siege have only served to weaken the healthcare system and haven't done anything to, to stop the, uh, the spread of the virus. And so this is why the authorities took the step to lock down um, the Gaza Strip completely in the hopes that the numbers, the number of infections will actually drop because the healthcare system, it has, was already on the verge of collapse before the, the pandemic began. And add to this the number of cases and you can see just how fragile or just how it has the potential to go over the edge, which is precisely what, um, what Israel wants. Uh, if it didn't want to see that, it wouldn't be preventing the, the, the uh, electricity, wouldn't be preventing the repair of the water supply, wouldn't be uh, blocking the, the importation of much needed medical supplies mm -hmm. um, or building supplies. Uh, but that's, this is the situation that, that unfortunately they are living under. Yep, and that's the cruel irony of it all is that Gaza is already suffering tremendously because of Israel's suffocating blockade. And then Gaza has to then go under an even more strict lockdown precisely because of the impact of the broader blockade on the health system and everything else. Um, it's, it's a reminder once again of the fact that Israel's blockade on Gaza remains the number one threat to the people living there and it really needs to come to an end. Um, Amanda, I know that a little bit ago during the lockdown in the West Bank, back when it was in place, uh, you had talked to some Palestinians about the ways that they were coping with this. And we had published some of uh, the interviews with Palestinians that I thought were very compelling about the ways that they're coping with it, especially with Palestinians being used 
to being under blockade because of Israel's repeated invasions of the West Bank where there were curfews imposed and everything else. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of the sentiment with people there and how people are coping with it from what you're experiencing? Yeah, um, so I had talked to a few people and um, just some of some of them, my close friends and then um, realized that they weren't um, coping with it all that well. They had found that we're, they're essentially already under a lockdown here. And to add another layer of the lockdown kind of made it um, something, I think you get into your head about it a little bit more. So you, you know before, okay, I need a permit to go here or I can't go here because there's a checkpoint, but then you add Palestinian checkpoints. And you can't go from your house to, to the grocery store without being stopped or um, just different ways in, in which, you know, your life is even more restricted. That makes it kind of hard for you to get out of it a little bit. And um, just having to think about these things every day. Okay, like, how am I going to avoid this checkpoint? Or, okay, now I have to go to, I talked to a student who uh, her family lives part-time in, in Ramadan, part-time in Jerusalem. And they couldn't even go to Jerusalem. And if they did, her dad had to figure out which were the where the all the corona checkpoints were to avoid them and take back streets. And it was something to add, you know, to their to their already, you know, exhausting um, yeah. route. That, that has to be an to. experience, right? Palestinians are used to trying to avoid Israeli checkpoints that are imposed on them by a foreign occupying army. And in this case, it's trying to figure out how to get around Palestinian checkpoints that are how to get around the corona reasons. checkpoints. Yeah. Yeah, no, and so um, it, 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 was, it, was, it was really interesting because, you know, I, I was actually in the middle of moving right during the lockdown. So I had to sneak past some of my car filled with, you know, all my, my stuff trying to get from one house to another. And I was stopped at one point and they said, what are you doing? Like, this isn't your, they, they start to figure out where you live and where your neighborhood is. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, um, I'm, I'm moving. They're like, why are you moving now? I'm like, well, I wasn't anticipating a lockdown, you know, when I had decided to move homes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and it was, I found it really hard, like even for students, you know, like they had to, now there's, you know, the Zoom school, but before, um, all that was kind of organized, a lot of students, you know, their routine was completely changed or, you know, they they find themselves at home or, or maybe they find themselves missing their friends. And I even talked to a guy who's a pharmacist and he told me his, um, his friends completely, you know, cut him off because they knew he was going to be around people often mm-hmm. and maybe around, you know, possible corona patients or people that are in touch with people with the coronavirus. Um, and he found that really, you know, difficult to, to all of a sudden be ostracized by his friends. And, you know, he's already in a lockdown. Mm-hmm. In a way, you're called on to rise to the occasion and be the person who can help. And then that as a result ends up putting you in a more isolated situation. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it also, I think a big thing was after the second lockdown, I think the first one, we started to get a routine. I personally needed routine in order to be able to be in the lockdown and have something, you know, scheduled every day. Like if it was going for a short walk or, you know, my trip to the grocery store, whatever it was. And um, after the lockdown ended, it was like, okay, back to life as we know it. And then the second lockdown happened. And mm-hmm. then I think that also played a big role in having to mentally prepare to get back into your homes and prepare to, you know, to go to the grocery store, you know, at certain times because grocery stores were opened only at certain hours. And if there were lines, you had to, you know, there was always lines outside the grocery stores waiting or different things. And I, I, if I can also add that like, grocery stores, 
are a bit more um, expensive. And so having like the, the markets closed, I think was also hard on a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, especially the people that, that rely on the markets to sell their produce. I, I know like at least in Ramallah, I would see people all um, in different areas trying to sell their produce. And then, you know, a cop comes by, you see them quickly trying to gather their things and go. An economy under occupation, and that also ends up being exacerbated substantially in these situations. And for those interested in some of the interviews that Amanda has conducted with people, they are available on our website, that is imeu.org. You are just listening to Amanda Arab Saade and Diana Boto. Thank you both very much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Omar. Thank you for listening to This is Palestine a podcast brought to you by the Institute for Middle East Understanding. The IMEU is a nonprofit focused on giving you access to untold stories, facts, and expert sources on all things Palestine. For more information, please visit our website at www.imeu.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the IMEU. Please don't forget to subscribe. I'm Deanna Butu. Thanks for listening.